Self-care isn't like having a bubble bath. Self-care is like really investing in your own dreams and forcing yourself to do that and taking the risk on that. Like that is true, true, true self-care. The best ideas, the best ideas work and people want them when there's still lots of typos. That's the best way I can describe it. Every entrepreneur has to pitch. Every entrepreneur has to like massage their data to look like the best version of themselves. But when you look at your own data, sober as fuck, are you like, this is really magical. Like someone's rejecting you at noon. Someone's telling you you're worth, you know, a billion dollars at one o'clock. Someone else is quitting in your company. Like you're in chaos all the time when you build a high growth company. And so there's like no like, wow, we did it. It's like, wow, we have big expectations now. Wow, we have like work to do. Wow, this is like a really cool inflection point. But like, there's no, like you can celebrate a little bit when you sell your company. My name's Mimi Bouchard, founder of Superhuman, the transformational app that helps you become your future self so that you can finally start attracting more joy, abundance, health, wealth, and love into your life. And that's also my mission on this podcast. Meet people whose lives have been transformed in big and small ways, but always for the better. They tell me how they did it so that you can too. On this episode, everything you need to know about entrepreneurship and building a multi-million dollar business with Dragon's Den star and tech entrepreneur, Michelle Romano. All right, Michelle Romano, so excited to have you on today. You are in Toronto right now. I'm in the Bahamas from the same city. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How are you doing today? It's great to be here. Thank you for, for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. I'm I'm so glad we got to squeeze this in. So for everyone listening, you are the youngest dragon on Dragon's Den. That's amazing and so cool. What is it actually like being the youngest dragon on Dragon's Den and being so successful at such a young age? Well, the first thing is I don't think of myself as very successful. <laughs> I think that that's the wonderful thing about being an entrepreneur is it's constantly taking a strip out of you, reminding you that you are not invincible, that, you know, your, your shit does stink. And sometimes it just, it really brings you back down to earth. And so I think that's probably the the first thing. I mean, joining the show was an incredible opportunity that I got at a really young age. I was 28 years old when I joined the cast of Dragon's Den. So I think the show is made in something like 34 countries and, I was certainly the youngest person on any of those any of those panels and I think maybe it gave me the opportunity to just see things really differently because I wasn't retired I wasn't just an investor I was really the pitcher for most of my career I was standing there in front of you know investors saying this is my idea and I think you know it's always funny because I think it's rare to get a great idea from reality television. But in the case of Dragon's Den, I remember seeing that founders were giving up way too much equity in their business, right? They were coming on the show. They were saying, look, I'm prepared to give up 10 or 20, 30% for my first $100,000. And 
you know, for almost all e-commerce companies, they were going to use that money on ad spend and marketing. And so it just, it didn't make sense, especially as a founder that had had built and sold a business. And it understood that I wouldn't have had any of the financial return if I had effectively had investors. And so I remember on the show saying, look, I, you know, I'll, I'll do your deal, but I'll do it on a different structure. I'll give you that hundred grand instead of taking 10% of your business that I'll own forever. I want 10% of your revenue until you pay me back my money plus 10%. And that was the first, you know, revenue share deal. Everyone in the finance world thought we were bananas for doing this. We said, you know, we would do it with no personal guarantee because we would look at the data of the business. And, you know, eight years later, we were the category creator of this revenue-based financing category. Uh, ClearCode has deployed over $5 billion to 10,000 different founders. It's completely based on your data. And so we don't meet founders. We don't hear their pitches, which means inadvertently, and we didn't expect this, that 50% of our dollars goes to, you know, female founders. Uh, A third of our founders are are visible minorities and a quarter of our founders didn't go to post-secondary education. So, I mean, it's pretty crazy what you can do when you take the bias out and you just use data and AI to do, you know, pretty incredible things. But the real secret is that the show's been a fun part of my life. It gave me an incredible idea to build a business on. And, you know, nine seasons later, I'm still super happy to be doing it, still meeting great founders and closing deals because that's what I love to do. That is so incredible. And I didn't realize that there were so many, quote, you know, women minorities that that are getting this funding from you. I recently had uh, Jacqueline Johnson on the podcast, and she's big in the VC space. And we were talking on the show about how less than 2%, I believe it was, of women get VC funding. And I thought, that is so crazy. Why? Is it because they're definitely creating just as many businesses as men? So what's what's the deal here? And it obviously shows that you have something that's just data driven and you don't have to, you know, get pitches from founders. It's really just about the numbers. And these people are obviously wanting to grow their business in a way and and looking for a way to do that without that bias. Totally. Totally. No, it's a, it's a huge amount of, it's it, like, it's crazy. It's 2% of women get BC funded. They have, women have tons of incredible businesses. They make incredible entrepreneurs. There's just, you know, there's still a lot of bias left in the system. And so, you know, we see that as an opportunity. Right. I even saw something the other day that showed that women-led businesses actually are more profitable. Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. Totally possible. Yeah. So you have described yourself as being a born entrepreneur. Tell me about that. Did you always know that you were going to be a serial entrepreneur? No. You know, I think I went to school for engineering because my parents told me I could study anything I wanted as long as it was engineering. So I had an abundance of choice. And it was there that I met my first business partner, Anatoly. And he was like, could sell anything. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm doing these like business plan competitions for this little coffee shop I was building on campus. And he's like, oh, is that like a you know, one of those like stupid kind of like model United Nations like things. And I was like, no, like you get a real check for like 25 grand if you win. And he's like, oh, that's crazy. And so the next year we worked on building a business plan. Our business plan was to build a caviar fishery because, because worldwide supply of caviar was down by 95%. We had never gone fishing. We knew nothing about caviar, but we did an enormous amount of research, ended up winning like six business plan competitions. And then Mimi, the craziest part is we said no to all of our jobs after college. And we actually moved to New Brunswick 
and started to build a fishery from scratch. That's everything it sounds like. My hands knee deep in fish. Like we were, it was, it was like boats, fishermen, like the whole nine yards. And I think that's when I originally got the bug to figure out how to build a business. That one wasn't successful because we had a giant recession in 2008. And so I was 21 years old selling the world's most unnecessary luxury product. So that was not great timing for me. But, you know, I ended up from there, you know, we went to go build an early e-commerce company, an early AI app that we sold to Groupon, and then, you know, just kept building. And so I think after I had caught the bug, I was like, I don't think I could go back to not, and it's not about being your own boss. It's really about like controlling your own destiny. If you want to work hard, you should work for yourself because you will see the the richest outcomes for doing that. There's a lot of people that work hard for others. And that comes with its ups and downs because when things go wrong, when market conditions change, you have no one else to blame. You have very little safety net, but man, can you go fast if you know nothing's holding you in the way? I've actually had a similar perspective that it seems like this is not what most people think. You know, I believe that it's actually safer to be my own boss, right? People right. think security comes from having a nine to five. Like we were getting a mortgage. We just bought a home in London. Yeah. And it was so funny because it was harder. We had to go with like a, a different type of bank, like a non-high street bank because yeah. we, my uh, fiance and I are both entrepreneurs. entrepreneurs. And yeah. even if we are earning a lot more than the average person, it doesn't matter. We're still way higher risk. But the reality is, isn't it more risky to have your whole income in just someone else's hands. So I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. It's very interesting. Totally. Totally. You know, I, th- I think that there's like a real, there's a real truth to that. <laughs> it's like you, when you have things in your own hands and look, the financial institutions have not evolved in a lot of different ways. Like they're certainly not going to understand how to underwrite the risk of having a job versus not having a job. But I think when you talk about making investments, the single best investment you can make is in yourself and taking the risk to build a business is like, there's nothing. And I read this great article a couple of years back and they're like, self-care isn't like having a bubble bath. Self-care is like really investing in your own dreams and forcing yourself to do that and taking the risk on that. Like that is true, true, true self-care. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So let's go back in time a little bit. Yeah. Your your journey, obviously, what, when you began thinking about becoming a business person, who was your first business inspiration? Like, did you see someone and you thought, you know what, I really want a life like that? My parents both grew up really poor and ended up doing really well for themselves. My dad grew up in a in a two bedroom farmhouse without a bathroom and ended up getting into engineering school and worked in the oil and gas sector. And so I remember there was like business was constantly talked about at the dinner table. Like it was just, you talked about what was happening around the world. You talked about macroeconomic events. Like it was just, that was probably a little bit of my first business inspiration, but it probably like wasn't till high school where I started figuring out like you could join something and that was okay. Or if you took the initiative yourself, you could go way faster and way further. (laughs) I think that was probably the next place where I started to see that. And then I met really good mentors along the way. I met a woman when I was just starting by Topia. I was like 20, 
23 or 24. And I remember, you know, you should always kind of take cold calls is, is what I've like, I love the like line of like, always say yes. People are like, Oh no, you got to say no to everything. And I'm like, you have to say yes to a lot of random connections. So I remember I get introduced by a mutual friend and they're like, Oh, this woman's looking to interview Canadian entrepreneurs. She's doing a speech for the Canadian government. And I was like, this doesn't really like seem like my cup of tea, right? This seems like government. This seems like, you know, who is this person? In addition to that, she missed the first three phone calls we had scheduled. So I was like, who is this woman? She didn't have very much online profile. I was like, whatever. Anyway, she finally calls me. I still never forget this for the rest of my life. And it's supposed to be like a 20 minute phone call. And it lasts for three and a half hours. I have never closed the door to my office and talked on the phone with three hours with anyone before. And so we became like best of friends. She was like basically 10 years ahead of me in her entrepreneurial career. She is one of the most connected people that I know on the planet earth. (laughs) And she just welcomed me under her wing. And she's like, why don't you come to New York next week? Why don't we go to the Forbes Women's Summit? Why don't we do this? And I was like, I didn't even know these things existed. And so, you know, always say yes to the cold call. Even if it just takes five minutes, just, you know, see if there's there's a connection because you just really never know who you're going to be introduced to. That's incredible. Was she quite pivotal for your career and being introduced to this kind of new world? Oh, yeah. I mean, she's just helped me throughout the years with so many different things. We started a nonprofit together where Richard Branson was the entrepreneur in residence. Like we just got to do so many fun things and it all started over this random phone call. She helped me expand internationally with ClearCo. Like it was just, it was a really cool story. That's incredible. Do you think people can make it without a mentor? Because obviously everyone listening right now is like, oh, well, I don't have a mentor, so it's going to be hard for me, right? What do you have to say to that? Look, I think the mentor is, I I actually really dislike the word mentor. I know people really like it and they think it's some some sort of panacea. I would equate it to like, imagine walking into a bar and meeting someone for the first time and being like, hey, do you want to just like have kids with me? They'd be like, what? Like we have it, we don't even know each other. Like it's so strange to just come up to someone and be like, do you want to just like be my parent? It's like, no, I don't really want to be your parent. I don't know you. But it is incredibly not unusual for you to have very deep emotional relationships with all sorts of people you meet. And those people can be older, those people can be younger. But I actually believe you should view every relationship as exactly what it is, which is like a give and take in both directions. Like this idea that like one person does all the mentoring or the giving and one person does all the receiving, that never works. Like there has to be you know, some equality between those two things. Anyway, that's kind of the way that, that I would think about it. So I don't think that, I mean, Ruma was certainly helpful, but many people are helpful. Sometimes people are in your life for, you know, a minute, a week, a year, 10 years. And so it's about building those relationships and investing in those relationships and doing really kind and thoughtful people and helping other people out, right? Like you really get what you receive. And so None of these relationships are like, I asked this person to be my mentor and they just like magically helped me out. It's like, I met someone great. We had really good chemistry just as human beings that liked each other. We both helped each other in lots of ways and then magic happened. And I think that that's why you can't think of this as like a mentoring relationship. It has to be a lot more than that. Right. So what if one person obviously has a lot more wisdom and experience and 
success, how could the person who has less help out? Like, are there any quick tips that you have for someone who's maybe starting out? Yeah. Like, I think you have to remember, you just like know and see different things. And so it's really like listening to be helpful. So I'll give you an example that, that was always really funny to me. So I was trying to get this deal done with this bank executive and he's like, I'm like 30 and he's like 50. So like we have a pretty major age difference and you know, I need him to get this deal done. I'm the entrepreneur begging for the partnership. And all I remember is I was like, Oh, what are you doing this weekend? And he's like, well, I actually have to fill out this thing for my visa where he had to count the number of days he was in Canada versus the U S and as someone who's done that before, um, I was like, Oh my God, that's so annoying. Did you know there's this website that the American government has that actually tracks it for you. You can just log in and then it like spits it all out. And he's like, no way. So I literally sent him a link. It cost me nothing. It did nothing. And it saved his entire weekend of doing all of these, like these applications. And so it's like, it's listening to be helpful, right? Like that was not something that I needed more experience to do. That was not something that I needed more money to do. That was just something I needed to care. And I happened to know that thing. I mean, you know, I don't know, people's kids need to go to the right schools. They need to get to know the right teachers. They might have a health concern. Like when you care about a human being, you care a lot more about like, are you just going to get this deal in front of you done? And I think it's ultimately stuff like that, that ends up building really deep, rich human relationships. Beautiful. So you are obviously young, successful, and I don't know about you, but for me, I am a young entrepreneur and I'm obviously a female. Sometimes I get spoken to in a certain way and I don't get taken seriously um, in a certain way with certain types of people. How does that affect you? Does it happen to you? And how do you react and respond when it does? So I've been underestimated my whole life, my whole life. I am five foot four. I'm not very big. Everyone's like, you're so little. I'm like, nope, always been this size. I had no public profile for years and, you know, I'm a, I'm a blonde woman. And so here's what helped me. I think I started really young as an entrepreneur. I started when I was effectively 20 years old and I had no idea if people weren't taking me seriously because I was a female, because I was young, or I had no idea what I was talking about. All three of those Mimi were very, very true. (laughs) So I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. I have thought for a long time that the only thing I can control is my output. I can't control what people think of me. So, you know, if a regular person has to do a hundred pitches, I would have to do 200 pitches. And the only thing I could do is control my output. That was the only thing I had control over. And so I think there was like a couple of of tips and tricks I probably learned along the way. So you need to learn how to command respect versus just assuming that it needs to be given to you by default. I do not expect anyone to respect me and I do not expect anyone to listen to me. Everyone is busy. Everyone has their own lives and their own families. And so I have a really succinct pitch when I meet people of who I am, what I've done, what I'm like, and why I'm worth listening to for the next 20 minutes. And it's mind blowing how many people don't want to do that, or they like feel like it's cocky to do that, or they don't have a good way of telling their story. I mean, I can literally give you my pitch, which is, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur, done everything from build a caviar fishery from scratch to an early e-commerce business, an AI company that was bought by Groupon, joined the cast of Dragon's Den nine years ago, have an angel portfolio now, and then started a company on that called ClearCo that became a, you know, two and a half billion dollar unicorn. 
And then I always say, you know, something fun about me. <laughs> so, you know, have done some cool nonprofit work, part of the World Economic Forum, been on the board of, you know, Vail and Whistler Blackcomb. So, you know, I try and create some connections if people are skiers or have done other things in their life. And then I always say at the end of it, you know, here's what's interesting to me. Like, this is why I want to do a deal with your company, or this is what's worth talking about, or this is, you know, our, our mutual connection. And like that whole thing took me 30 seconds. But in that you're like, okay, I can tell this girl has built something on her own. It probably hasn't been easy. She's capable of doing this. And like, we're hopefully going to get something done here, right? We're not just here to kind of like meet and greet type of thing. So I think that, that I would get your elevator pitch really tight on who you are and why you're running the business and why people should listen to you. Because like people can listen to anyone in this world. I think then there's a third part that's maybe like equally important. So the first part is like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. The second time is I try and nail the reasons why people should listen to me in the first place because I don't believe that's a that's a necessary for people to do. And the third thing is I think it is incredibly important to compare things to their extreme versions. So let me give you an example of this. One of the things you're saying is like it really sucks to be underestimated. And I'm very aware of what it feels like to be underestimated. But What's the opposite of being underestimated? Overestimated. Overestimated. So <laughs> imagine what it would like to be overestimated every day. I think that would suck. <laughs> that's a far worse fate than being underestimated yeah. every day. Think of someone like Elon Musk. The guy literally is running three companies, like him or not, I don't care. He puts a rocket into orbit and someone is disappointed with him. Like, I don't see a whole lot of you else putting things into space that are better than country space programs. So it just, it must be a crippling amount of pressure and anxiety and expectations to be overestimated all the time. And so I look at that and I'm like, man, I'd love to be underestimated. And I think finally, the last piece of this, because this is such a good question, is like, you can always transfer energy into something else. And so when I am underestimated, I get this like little sparkle in my eye and I'm like, oh, you just watch me because you're about to have your socks blown off. <laughs> like you literally just thought I couldn't do this. And I think I take real kind of like, not in a bad way, just like cute pleasure in surprising people. And I think if you can turn that underestimation into motivation, it serves as something really powerful. And let me be clear, you are not doing things for other people in your life or in your career. You have to do things because you want to do them. And that's not what I'm saying. I just think that we all have those moments where someone is like, oh, I just didn't think she'd make it, or I didn't think she'd do it, or I thought that idea was so stupid. And then you're like, I was, I was wrong about that. <laughs> Right. You know, that really just changed my perspective. What you said about, would you rather be overestimated? Honestly, I, I really have a completely different perspective shift because of that one thing you just said. So thank you. Right. you no, know, I, think, I think it's I, super powerful, yeah. right? Because sometimes we yeah. just complain about everything. It's like, I don't want to cook because it's time consuming. I don't want to order takeout because it's unhealthy. I don't want to go to a restaurant because it's unhealthy and I don't want to starve. So you're like, but there are no more options to eat dinner. And so I find that this is like a really good way to look at any problem. It's like, okay, well, I don't like one extreme, 
would I like the other extreme? And then it really like settles your mind a lot more, which I find is really powerful. It's an incredible tip. (laughs) Really, really is. Yeah. 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 And just taking responsibility for that, you know? Yeah. For example, I was telling you off air the nightmare that we're dealing with our app developers right now. And that is like the one area of my life right now where I feel like just completely taken advantage of and not taken seriously. And just like they think I'm this pathetic little girl. Maybe that's completely my projection, but just because of certain things they've done, you know, and realizing that this is my thought process and and it's not them telling me that it's maybe showing through certain actions, but me believing that. And I know of course that it's not the case, but it can definitely be difficult, especially when you are young and I'm, you know, 27 years old and I've built a company over the past two years or Mm -hmm. year and a half that's become way bigger than me. And I'm still trying to kind of figure out my balance with it all. And yeah, it's really good advice. I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) Good. I'm so glad that that resonated and that's helping because I just think that like you've done so much already and, and sometimes it isn't about you, right? Like if, if it's these app developers, it's like they might've had their own series of hiring problems, their own series of other issues. Like it's just, it's impossible. It's impossible to know all these things. And so just, you know, don't, don't make it about you. No, absolutely. All right. So let's go back to the entrepreneurship and, you know, business side of things quickly, just to wrap up that section. I would love to know from you, since you've come up with so many incredible business ideas, where do you think all these ideas come from? And is there a, thing that you do where you get your best ideas? You know, do you journal? Do you get your best ideas in the shower? Where do you kind of come up with it? And tell me what that's like. So your best ideas for what to do in your business or your best ideas for new businesses? Both. Both. Okay. So it's a really good question. And I think it just like depends on your personality type. I'm an extrovert. So I get a lot of good ideas like that tumble out of my mouth as I'm talking to people. Like it's really magical how like I have a certain number of people that I brainstorm with and I talk to and I just like magically like, oh, so I've always had like my original business partner, Anatoly, like Andrew, like we get talking, we're like, but what about this? But what about this? But what do you think of this idea? But like, and then it just like, it starts to snowball. And so that becomes a really good source of ideas. I think when you're looking for great ideas and great trends, like reading TechCrunch and finding out which businesses are funded and which spaces are hot and what people are following on social media, like, oh, that's actually pretty important, right? I got a lot of ideas just based on what was happening in the market and like what else, what else people were doing and how people were looking at industries. And then when you start there, you have to just start the process of iterating, right? You have to start by launching the first version, the first three versions of seven versions of whatever you launch are not going to work. You have to be prepared for that. And then as I solve day-to-day problems, I'm like very focused on like number one list making, which is like, just get this, like, you have to execute. You have to get the stuff off your list. You have to like lob the ball forward. You have to like, there's so much of just like straight productivity stuff. I have to like churn through in a day. And then I find I still get like decent ideas. I think the shower is a pretty good place for good ideas, especially on problem solving, because 
it's the last place on earth where you don't bring your cell phone, which I think is a funny, a funny reality of that. We like, we sleep with our phones. We run with our phones. We like do everything with our phones. And I don't, I'm not one of those people who is like, this is so bad. We should just get rid of them all. I'm like, this is just a tool you have to control, right? It would be the equivalent of being like, food is so bad. It makes you fat. You have to stop eating. It's like, that's not going to work. <laughs> there's just like, there's like, this is a product that has to like work in equilibrium with your body, right? So you can't eat too much and you can't eat too little, but you sure got to eat. And so I find that the shower is good for that. And I also find running is really good for that. I, I generally get pretty good ideas when I go for a run. All right, as you guys know, I love my rituals and my routines and I love putting good habits in place. An effective routine reduces stress, helps you stay motivated, it leads to better sleep, and for me, a lot less anxiety. You guys know I do certain things in the morning and the evening, and I also stay quite consistent with these supplements that I take. Organifi is one of those companies that I have used for literally years now, and I've been talking about them for years now, and so many of you have gotten hooked on their products too. Organifi is my favorite way to keep my healthy routine in check. I use so many of their products throughout the day. I start my day with their green juice. Most mornings I have smoothies, and when I do, I use the Organifi Vanilla Protein Powder. It is plant-based, low sugar, so delicious. And then in the afternoons, I've been having the Glow Drink, which is amazing for skin health, or I'll have the red juice, which is also just so delicious and full of antioxidants. And then at night when I have a sweet tooth, I'll often head for the cupboard where my Organifi Chocolate Gold drink is. This is like a healthy hot chocolate. I am obsessed with these products because they taste amazing and they are packed with superfoods that genuinely make you feel incredible. The thing about Organifi is that their quality of ingredients is so high, but then the taste is so good. So that doesn't happen often with supplement brands. Definitely go check them out. Head to Organifi.com forward slash Mimi for 20% off your entire order, including sale items. They also offer a money back guarantee. You guys got to get on this healthy routine of Organifi. It is honestly one of my favorite habits, and I look forward to using their products every day. Again, head to Organifi, O-R-G, anifi.com forward slash Mimi and use the code Mimi to get 20% off your entire order. Now let's get back to the episode. And uh, for anyone listening that has a business or is wanting to start a business, what's your best advice for entrepreneurs that are currently in a stagnant business and maybe not growing? Like when do you know when to quit and start something new? So this is the hardest question I get asked and there is no perfect answer or playbook. I can tell you, you always do it too late. You always like work on something for too long. I can tell you the best ideas, the best ideas work and people want them when there's still lots of typos. That's the best way I can describe it. Here's what a great product is. You're on someone's website. You want to buy these shoes. You've entered your credit card four times and you're like, take my money. And it doesn't matter that like, there's no real product description and like there's three typos and like one of the pictures is kind of skewed. You're like, this is such a cool product. I just want it. That is what it feels like to have product market fit. It's not perfect. It's not kind of working, but people are just like downloading it, doing it, coming back to see it for more. And so that's a really high bar. 
And what most people do is they're scared and afraid of that rejection and failure. So, you know, you launch a product, all your friends use it. Your mom is like, oh, this is so great. Everyone's telling you it's so great. It's like, no, no, no. Strangers have to like your product. Strangers have to come back. Strangers have to put your credit card in. It's why why I love crowdfunding campaigns so much because you have to buy a product that might not ship. And it's not like a survey where you're like, do would you like to do this in a theoretical world? It's like, will you give me your credit card right now for something that do, does not exist? That means people really want your product. So it's a great way to test. And so what I call this is like sober eyes data. Like Every entrepreneur has to pitch. Every entrepreneur has to like massage their data to look like the best version of themselves. But when you look at your own data, sober as fuck, are you like, this is really magical. Like I can make this product for two bucks. I can sell it for 10 bucks. It cost me a dollar to find people on the internet. Like those have margins where like, if you make it fuck up in them, there's still lots of room for you to be successful. And are you having things that are going genuinely viral, not in the way of like, I got a one hit wonder, but in the way that like people just like this so much that they'll share it. One of the craziest stats I've heard recently that, that I know is true is, do you know the number one way the books are bought? People telling other people to buy a book and it's It's like word of mouth. Wow. 80% of book sales is someone tells someone else to buy a book. Anyway, like, like the industry, don't like the industry. Like that is, that is irrelevant. It's how we've grown superhuman. That it's been word of mouth. It's word of mouth. It's, this is a really, really, really great product. So I would just keep that in mind is like, when you look at your data in a really sober way, is this a product good enough that people that don't know you would call their mom and call their friends and tell them about what you have? And if it's not that good, you just got to start the next idea you could, or you have to see the little part that's working and you got to iterate and launch the next thing. And when something fails, it is enormously painful as an entrepreneur. I have been through so many of these. I have sat in the rubble of my own ideas so many times. And here's how you do it. You spend a day or an hour with your notebook in a room with no internet connection and you write down everything you learned. And you internalize everything that you have learned. And after that process of learning, you stop. You don't dwell on it anymore. You're like, I'm launching my next thing. I've taken my learnings away and I'm moving on. But I think that is like incredibly important for how you digest things. The product being the star beyond anything, right? Yeah. You know, there are so many businesses that just rely on Facebook ads or TikTok ads. And then it's like the Apple iOS update. Well, I forget which one it was, but it was a couple of years ago. Kind yeah, yeah. of made all Facebook ads really terrible totally. and not really bring as much, you know, bad ROAS and everything. So then it's like, okay, the product itself has to sell itself, right? So that's, that's yeah. a really great piece of advice. Just focusing so much on product, product, product. That's really great advice. And seeing if that that's something that people get excited about. Yeah. Is there, yeah. So would you say creating something new versus creating something that there are many different versions of is probably a better idea? So it stands out. Kind of do either. I've been a fast follower many times in my career. I've been a category creator in my career. Both have advantages and disadvantages. You can make money at both. 
they're just different games to play. Like it's actually fun to be a fastballer. You know, many things you don't have to iterate and you don't have to try from scratch. You're like, okay, this is basically the copy of the website and this is how the product looks. And this is, and now we're going to take our own twist on it. And so you're perfecting something that's great. And, you know, lots of early category creators make mistakes and lots of people, you know, over lever their company. There's all sorts of like classic mistakes you make as the category leader. And when you look at the track course of many businesses, I mean, Google wasn't the first search engine and Facebook wasn't the first social network. And there's lots of fast followers that have done exceptionally well. And category creation is its own series of incredible joy. I mean, you are truly ahead. You are truly trying everything. I mean, we couldn't figure out what to call the revenue-based category. We didn't have a loan and we didn't have an equity deal. And we were like trying to call this category something like the amount of time we had to spend educating the market into what we were was crazy. And then people were just like, oh, you're the clear code for this and the clear code for this. And we like built this brand. But my God, it took a lot to educate the market on what we were. And then, so I think it's just, it's literally like a, and it's not even a different strokes for different folks. It's like, you know, what, where are you in the cycle? Do you think this is a good idea? Like all of that type of stuff. So what was it like to hear the word billion when it came to your valuation? Do you remember (laughs) what that was like when you found out? Well, you don't, you don't find out you kind of like are negotiating for it along the way, right? You're pitching for your business. And every time you're pitching, it's just as scary, you know, like someone's rejecting you at noon. Someone's telling you you're worth, you know, a billion dollars at one o'clock. Someone else is quitting in your company. Like you're in chaos all the time when you build a high growth company. And so there's like no, like, wow, we did it. It's like, wow, we have big expectations now. Wow. We have like work to do. Wow. This is like a really cool inflection point, but like, There's no, like you can celebrate a little bit when you sell your company. That's like a, that's like a moment to celebrate. But before that, it's like, it's like, it's just another step along the journey. And, you know, very few women have done it. So it felt really cool. It felt really cool to have the impact we've had on our founders and sharing some of that joy with them. But I mean, then the other thing is valuations go up and down. And so, you know, FinTech was really hot two years ago, and then we've had a whole cooling down in the space and our multiple is pegged to many others. And so you watch that valuation go up and down and you can't tie your own personal sense of self-worth to your valuation, which is really, really easy to do. But it's just, if you've been an entrepreneur for long enough, you just realize businesses go up and down. And that's just a part of it. Earlier when I was introducing you, I obviously said you were incredibly successful and you said, no, I don't feel that way. Tell me a bit about that thought process. Why don't you feel that way? It's it's obvious you've created massive businesses in your life. (laughs) Why don't you feel incredibly successful? Because I think you stop working. I think it's like my own mental mind shift. Like I, I feel successful in the way that I feel very grateful. Like I feel like this, my whole life exceeded my wildest expectations by an enormous margin. I mean, I, I spent kindergarten to grade six in Regina, Saskatchewan. I mean, for the Americans, it's like somewhere above Montana, like the true middle of nowhere. And I thought if I ran a company with two people, like that would be great. Like getting to be a national celebrity and building a, you know, all of that is, is just, is beyond my wildest dream. So I'm very grateful that I had those opportunities. I think a lot of those were luck. I certainly worked my ass off. I mean, I worked 
it is difficult to describe to someone who hasn't done this job how hard you work as a founder and how constant it is and how unforgiving it is. I mean, I would, I'm a, I'm a night owl, so I would wake up at nine. I would have 14, 30-minute back-to-back booked every day. Like, that is a lot of meetings. Like, you are, like, hoping someone cancels one of them and you get to go pee and eat something and, like, have 10 seconds. And people were like, why do you have typos in all of your text messages? I'm like, because every hour I get 30 new messages that like need responding to, like you can't keep up with that level of information. And so it's like hard to explain how all encompassing it is. But I think like back to your question of like, I've also had the luckiness, I guess, of meeting some like people that are way more successful than me. And even then they're like, we haven't made it. And I think when you think you haven't made it, there's, and there's more to do, you stay hungry and it doesn't mean you don't enjoy your life. And it doesn't mean at some points you don't take some time off. But I also think you just, you stop learning when you get really cocky and, you know, especially as a founder the world has a way of coming back and really reminding you that, you know, you're not perfect. (laughs) Absolutely. So what's the biggest misconception that people have when they're on the outside looking at a company like yours, you know, the massive growth to a multi-billion dollar valuation? I think it's like extraordinary how many people will like message me being like, I want your life. And then I would be like, I just want you to follow me for 24 hours because like this life is a lot less glamorous than it looks. This, this life looks a lot like getting the last seat on the airplane. So like no one's flying first class when the flight was booked 45 minutes ago. Like this looks a lot like solving fires. Like the moment you sit down to dinner, unemployee quits. The moment you sit down to dinner, something massive breaks and you have like a hack. Like that's like, it just, it's so wild and so unpredictable. And so you have to be like along for that journey. Like I would say people that are like unprepared to get parking tickets and unprepared to like live in chaos all the time should not be founders. Like there's just no way to, to do this. Like if you're not willing to park your car basically anywhere and like deal with consequences later, you're like, like it's going to be really hard. And if you're not willing to be like at any point, all of this could blow up and it will blow up all sorts of things. Like I've had to give up going to weddings and birthdays and summer vacations and like all sorts of things that... I've had to sacrifice to just, to just make this work. And so that's not saying that there wasn't a lot of joy along the way. There's an incredible amount of joy when you get to build something from scratch. There's an incredible amount of joy when you get to do that with the team. I think what people don't see is the absolute chaos, the absolute unpredictability, the insane expectations that everyone has on you. Your investors have insane expectations. The market has insane expectations. You know, everyone wants to cancel you. Everyone wants to take you down for saying something that's like totally effing normal. Like there's just a lot of pressure. And so that's okay. I mean, can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, but that's just kind of what it entails. And so if you're not, you know, fully into it and fully willing to also just I think not care what people think, not care about a bad glass door review, not care about other things. Like that is a huge part of what it takes to do this. Do you think one day you'll, you know, sell the company, settle down and live a more simple life? Totally possible. But when I look at business, 
there's very rarely incredible things that are accomplished when you are not sprinting. So like you want to get a product launched, you want to get a deal live, you need to finish a lawsuit. Like all of those are like a big sprint. You're going to work till midnight. You're going to get it done. And then after you sprint, you have to like take time for yourself. And so I actually think there's like these really beautiful inflection points when you're a founder, you sell a company, you get a couple years off, you get to invest in yourself and your relationships and maybe your family and other things. And then I think most of us get that urge to build again. I think Entrepreneurs also have one of the greatest retirement plans of all time because they can take everything they've learned, they can join boards or they can become investors, which is kind of a a natural pseudo board member anyway, where they can take everything they've learned and do that and help entrepreneurs, but just in a less intense day-to-day sort of role. So, you know, I, I was running ClearCo for eight years. I stepped down a couple months ago, so I'm just still getting even used to like, what this looks like. And I have tons of stuff to keep me busy right now, but I think that there's certainly those inflection points. And look, the only thing that does not work in your life, and I actually look at balance that way as well. I look at balance in a year. Like, did I have enough time with my family this year? Did I not have enough time with work this year? Did I get my work things accomplished? Like there is no way an entrepreneur can lead a life in, in daily thirds. I call the daily thirds, like sleep for eight hours, work for eight hours, and have personal time for eight hours. That is impossible for an entrepreneur. But you can certainly have that life if you zoom out and expand your time horizon. So I think that that's how I would look at balance and I would never say anything is off the table. So you mentioned that you stepped down from ClearCo as the CEO, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the reasoning behind that, if you don't mind sharing? it was time, right? The, I was exhausted. It had been eight years. I started the company with Andrew out of our apartment. Like it was so intense. You know, the market had shifted substantially into what needed to happen in the fintech space. There was better people to do that for me. I'm a very active chairman of the company. I still do a ton of work. I still do a ton of daily work on ClearCo. And so it was, you know, the other part of being a good founder is knowing when you don't have the right skill set for the right market. This market had changed and it was not about, you know, growth forever, which is really the market that we were in. And so that just kind of made sense. So how did you come to that difficult decision or was it just something you were really ready to do? No, I think you spend a lot of time with yourself, with your board, uh, figuring out like my successor was a huge part of that. Like he had worked with the company for six months. I, I really loved him. I thought he would be a great next person. We had a ton of mutual respect. And so, you know, that was, that was effectively like, you know, what, yeah, why it just made sense. Absolutely. And of course we were just talking about how You've had so much incredible success, but this last year has been tough and Mm -hmm. you had to do some layoffs. Tell me about how you prepared for this layoff announcement and how that felt for you. You know, hiring and firing and workforce management is like a, an incredibly normal part of being a CEO. And I think we lost track of that a little bit because we were in a crazy growth market for so long. And people just forgot that was a very normal part of being a leader. Let me tell you, that's a miserable part of being a leader. There is nothing that hurts more than having to lay off people. It is awful. These are people, you know, their families, you are some of their closest friends, you know, the name of their dogs. It's like, you know, their children, it's incredibly difficult to do, but 
Also, let me be clear. It is your job to do. It is your job to figure out how to adapt your company to today's market conditions. And when you're a loss-making company in a market that's not rewarding that, you have to fix that. And headcount is a huge, huge, huge part of that reality. And so I think it's incredibly unfair when people like blame CEOs and like, oh, you should have known in advance and not hired so many people. It's like, um, well, if you can predict the weather, you should be making weather predictions (laughs) and making a lot of money on selling those because I don't know a single person who can perfectly predict the future. I can tell you that no one hires someone with the intention of firing them. That, that just does not happen. And so it's an awful thing that that people need to go through. It's really unfair, I think, when CEOs get targeted with like, oh, well, they're just so terrible, they just didn't know. And I think then the only way to do this is the most humane way as possible. I try and keep everyone in my network. I get asked all the time for reference calls for people. I opened up my network to tons of people. And when you do great work, you will always have a job. I can tell you that much because I would like in a heartbeat, like I don't call and give a reference call. I give a sales call. I'm like, if you don't hire this person, you're an idiot. Like they were so incredible. (laughs) And so I, I think that that's just part of the reality in operating. And I mean, look, we had a very quick change in the economy. We had a very big hike in interest rates over a very short period of time. And it's up to CEOs to adapt their businesses to those markets. And, yeah. and that's just a normal part of doing it, but it is, it does not make it easy. It was some of the hardest things I had to do as CEO. Yeah. It's just, it's just brutal. Would you say that firing people is the hardest part of being a CEO? Mm, no, it's in the mixed bag of very hard things to do. I mean, getting sued is very hard. Doing intense, you know, legal battles yourself is very hard. Firing people is very hard. Pivoting your whole company when the market changes and your product is no longer relevant to today's market is incredibly hard. Doing that with 20 people is hard. Doing that with 500 people is even harder. Raising money in tough environments is very hard. I mean, (laughs) motivating a team after you've had a couple of things not go well is very hard. Like it's just in the bucket of hard. And having employees hold you hostage is very hard. You know, people threatening to cancel you is very hard. Like there's just, I I can, there's like a bunch of hard shit you have to do as a founder. And all of those things hit you a bit differently depending on, on where you are. But I like to remind people that they're hard, but they can do them. And, you know, our bodies were built to like roam the earth with like fire in the rain. Like at the end of the day, like we can do this stuff. (laughs) It's like extraordinary what the human body and mind was built for. And I kind of remind myself of that pretty often when I'm like, oh my God, this is so difficult. And I'm like, Michelle, you have power. (laughs) And sometimes those comparisons like don't work very well. You're just very frustrated, but know that you're like not alone. I literally had a a founder reach out to me last night. It's a very personal story, but I think it's it's one worth telling. And, you know, she's, you know, company's quite large. She's had an employee that I think was, was very hostile and now is threatening to be like, oh, well, I did all these hostile things and, you know, you threatened to kill yourself. And she's like, what if they do this whole expose about how like this employee made me suicidal. And then I'm like, honestly, then embrace it. I, every single founder goes through like very deep troughs of anxiety and depression. Like, and there's, I'm sure if you ask 99 founders, 96% of them would say they have had a moment where they just thought they couldn't do this anymore. Like that is sad. And that is exceptionally normal, but the more you normalize it, 
I think the more you can get through it, because if you're the one you're like, I'm the only person feeling like this, I'm the only person that is experiencing depression and anxiety as a founder, it feels super scary. If you're like, oh, this is just a little bit part of what happens. And think of what happens when we did this. I mean, no one talked about miscarriages and postpartum depression for years in society. Like literally no one. I think something like 30% of women have a miscarriage. It's some, it's some exceptionally high number. And then we start talking about it and you're like, oh, I don't need to feel so bad. Absolutely. You know, it's treacherous. And I actually would want to, you know, ask your advice on this. How do you deal with that intense anxiety when something really bad is going on, for example, legal issues, staff issues, how do you, obviously you take that home with you, especially if you work from home. Of course. But how do you manage that anxiety? Because I, I know it, I feel it. It's this constant, you just kind of get used to it. How do you, how do you manage your anxiety as a founder? Oh, there's like, there's like a bunch of things that you do. So I think the first is you try to have a circle of friends that are other founders that ground you in what reality is. So lawsuits feel terrible. And then you realize that every single founder has done a lawsuit. I remember the first time I sued, I thought it was the scariest thing in the world. And then I had a friend of me and be like, well, you've made it. You're worth suing Michelle or your company's worth suing. And I was like, what? This is like a, this is like a side. He's like, yeah. Now, I mean, like lawsuits in the United States are, are part of doing business. Like I, I, you know what I mean? Not, not to, not to be crass about it, but like, that's just, that's just a sign that you're kind of at a certain level in a certain stage. So having people to remind you and then having, you know, really good counsel around you to, to just help you actually through that process. I think like sometimes I'm like, I need to just like divert when I get really anxious. I'm like, I just need to like really exercise. Like, I know that sounds very weird, but I'm like, I need to put another piece of stress on my body. So my mind is allowed to take over. So like going outside and like sprinting and like running around and being like, okay, this is actually what physical exhaustion feels like, I think is a really good way to lower your heart rate. I don't know if that's like a scientific approved method, but it definitely like works well for me. So people calm you down, using your own body calms you down, like lots of the breath work and all of that stuff, meditation, like, I mean, you're obviously like very, very into that. So that is like helpful. And then I find that like making a plan is also a very big reducer of anxiety as well. Like, okay, you know, we're going to court on Tuesday. I need to have this ready for Wednesday. If they do this, we will do this. And it's like a strong plan loosely held. That's kind of the way to think about it. And so you could pivot that plan at every time, but I just find sometimes when I get really anxious, telling my brain that I have a plan is a really good way to think about it. I do the same thing. <laughs> I yeah. write it all down on a list. That's yeah. such a great tip. It's yeah. it's write it all such down a on a list. Tip. And then momentum also reduces my anxiety quite a bit, right? Like I think there's like breath work and meditation and those can give you what you need to do, but then you have to produce that own momentum in your body. And so I'm just like, yeah. okay, Michelle, I can do three things today. So get to the top of your list and like whatever you call it, bite the bullet, eat the frog first, do the hardest thing of the day. And then as soon as you do that, your whole day gets easier. And we all just, we all hate having performance conversations with people. We all hate like telling people they're not doing good enough. We all hate compensation conversations. It's just like stuff you have to do. It's in that bucket of just hard stuff you have to do as a founder. And then does it get easier over time? Mm, you get better at it over time. Mm -hmm. And so then you just get 
better at it over time. I don't think it gets easier. I don't think it's, again, I would never say it's easy to fire someone. I don't think it's ever easy to tell people they're not doing a good enough job, but these are just the nuts and bolts of like, that is your responsibility. You have to do that. That is part of your job. I just have that line too, weirdly in my life where I'm like, that's my job to do that. Like, it's just my job. That's like, it's not what I'm, it's not even what I'm paid to do. It's what like I need to do. And I find that there's a lot of CEOs that will like, that will like shirk away from that. Or they're just like, I just want to be the nice loved one. Like you're not going to make it. Like, I hate to break it to you. Like you become loved and revered and build something when you can make hard decisions. And people really, really respect you when you can make hard decisions because the reality is everyone knows. I'll tell you one more really good story about managing people. So this is, this is a good one. So it's the beginning of COVID you know, we have to do a layoff because there's just so many rules that like don't make sense inside of our company now that we are not an office. I mean, we had a campus recruiter that was supposed to go to campuses. We had an office manager. Like there was just so many things that like didn't make sense. And so I remember you go through this exercise and you're trying to figure out, you know, what part of the team are we keeping? What part of the team is leaving? And I remember everyone's like, well, don't do these forced ranking systems. They're horrible and they produce terrible results in a company. And actually the data on this is pretty, pretty skewed. So I remember calling basically every executive and the company was small enough at the time that, you know, we were 200 people that everyone kind of knew everyone else's teams. And I was like, can you just force rank everyone else's team for you? And they didn't have to do it against them, but it's just like in engineering, you know, who are the the three strongest engineers and the 10 middle ones and the three bottom ones. So I got every executive to do it for their business and the other business. And what do you think happened? They were all the same answers. They were all the same. It was insane. Plus or minus 5%, they were all the same. So you always get some like wild cards who's like someone with a crazy personality but performs pretty well or like, you know, someone who will maybe rank them kind of like the top versus the the bottom third or something like that. There's going to be a couple outliers there. But that is insane. That actually means, Mimi, that everyone in your company knows how well everyone else is doing because they just use their eyes. They just, they just know. And so if you're too chicken shit as a boss to tell your low performers that they're not doing well, it's like everyone just thinks you're weak because you haven't figured out. And what you end up doing is you demotivate your whole team because everyone at some point looks around and they're like, I'm busting my ass and this person is not, and this person is not getting anything done and they're getting paid, I don't know, somewhere in the same range and somewhere in the same, like, it's just, you have to do that. And the, the best part about that is like everyone knows. So it's, it's your job to deliver the message. It's your job to do the performance management. It's your job to figure out where that person goes. But, you know, you're just telling them what everyone else in your company knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a cool no, way to think about you're it. On, yeah, completely. And yeah, no, the, the worst thing is having people on the team that aren't performing. It's just, it's the biggest cost for most companies, right? Yeah. Employees. And yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to our quick fire round. Of course. Please. And then we'll wrap it up. So yeah. you have heard so many pitches being on Dragon's Den. Describe sure the perfect <laughs> pitch. What What's like the most amazing, perfect pitch? Describe it. What's the founder like? How excited are they? What's, you know, potentially the product category? Tell me what your perfect pitch is. Okay. The perfect pitch is someone who's 
incredibly focused, has a great energy and a really calm confidence about them. They immediately start with telling me their own story, which involves some level of struggle, not making it, figuring it out. I can feel the grit and resistance come out of their pores as they're telling me all the crazy stuff that they've had to deal with. They then tell me why they are uniquely suited to run this business, why they understand the category, the business, something about it, that there's not only they have the intelligence to do it, but they have the soul to do it. They are connected to their product and their thing where you're like, you are just going to do this because it just comes out of you. There's no other way to describe it. The product after that is kind of irrelevant. I mean, yes, you should have good metrics, positive unit economics, low CACs, high basket sizes, high margins, all of those things are great, really interesting in category, protected by IP, plus, 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 plus. But at the end of the day, in a great pitch, in a great equity pitch, it's really feeling why the founder is going to be super resilient and super persistent. And after getting that black eye for the 48th day in a row, they're going to go back the next day. And understanding why they love the category and why they're going to be the ones to do it. Incredible. That's really great. What is your take on the state of the market right now, entrepreneurship right now? And when do you think things will turn the leaf um, or turn the page? <laughs> I think things are tougher for, for later stage founders because that's where the markets really become difficult. I think for early stage founders, like things like this are great. Like, all these consumers are like, okay, we need, when you get consumers needing cheaper ways to do something, it is the single best time to intercept the market. And really most of businesses are figuring out cheaper or more inefficient ways or more efficient ways to do something. So, you know, the last recession was 2008. And in that recession, a lot of people lost their jobs. We are not at the job loss phase. The labor market is full right now of this, of this kind of economic cycle. But when that happened, here's what people did. They were like, oh, wow, I want a half-price manicure. What's this company called Groupon? I guess I'll buy from them. People are like, wait a second, a half-price taxi? If I get into someone else's car, I'll try that. That was called Uber. Then people were like, wait a second, a half-price hotel? But in the city that I'm staying in, I'll stay at an Airbnb. Think about that. All of those were insane innovations that were produced incredibly different consumer behavior in the sake of saving money. And so consumers are always looking to save money. Businesses are always looking to save money and be more efficient. And so when you get cycles like this, you get an exceptional amount of cheaper customer adoption than you would get in, in cycles where people feel like they have a lot of money. And so inflation is starting and will start to make people feel very poor. And it's very real what's happening right now. And so in some ways, it's a really good time for entrepreneurs to be thinking about how do I make something more efficient? How do I inject AI into something? How do I create something better? And really that market is going to be worth it. So I think for starting a business and for kind of scaling an early stage business, things are good. And we'll see how kind of, you know, markets shape out for, for the later stage guys. How do you deal with people who want to quote, pick your brain when it's someone you don't really care about? I actually want you to ask me the question you want to ask me, or you want to book time to ask me right now, because more than anything, there's a lot of things that I can't help people with that I actually just don't know the answer. There's a lot of things I do know the answer to, right? Like you're having, you know, one of 20 employee problems. I probably dealt with them throughout my career. So I could give you really good advice on that. But like, I don't know, you're having problems with someone copying your IP in China. Like I just, 
I haven't dealt with that problem in a decade, so I don't have good advice. And so the first thing is that when you just meet someone, just ask them the question you really want to know. <laughs> like literally don't like try to book time to give them a pitch, like truly give them your elevator pitch for your product or ask them the thing that you really want to know. And that is way, way, way more useful because if we get into a good conversation, I can genuinely help someone. I'll probably give you more of my time to be real. But if we're just going to kind of talk about nonsense for 20 minutes, like I don't want to book another 20 minute call of nonsense. I actually genuinely want to be useful. So that would be the best way. I also like when people, I always make it like slightly more difficult when people like ask me for time, especially when I was just like, so, so, so busy. I can do anything. It's like, okay, send me a calendar and might send me what you want to talk about. And like a lot of people would just like give up. And I was like, no, I actually didn't say no. I just said like, do like 10 minutes of homework. And so that was also a good way of screening people out. That's crazy. <laughs> what is your, your biggest money regret? My biggest money regret. I mean, I have, I've had lots of like, that's called the game of shoulda, coulda, woulda. And there's like so many things. I mean, I didn't buy pre IPO Facebook stock when I had the opportunity to, I didn't like, there's tons of, I missed out on smart suites, which was an incredible deal from dragon's den that I love the founder. And I just never got to doing the deal. And, you know, she sold the company for $400 million. That was a big miss. Like all of us have big, big misses. I don't think about it. I think about money in the way that money is, gives you some freedom. It's an interesting sense of score and you cannot be controlled by it. And then you should take a lot of risk in figuring out how to build something for yourself. And I certainly, I certainly did that. And I think that that really paid off. And then you should have a balanced portfolio, right? You know, 10, 20% of your money should be in high risk startups and the rest of it should be in pretty safe stuff. And then that allows you to keep some of that money for, for a long period of time. But I don't know. Maybe my biggest money regret that I didn't know about is I, I inadvertently accidentally signed a personal guarantee to have PayPal process our revenue on our first e-commerce website. And that came back to bite us in the ass. And I have a, a big story about that was a lot of the reason and motivation for starting ClearCo because I think taking personal guarantees from founders is like a really terrible thing. So yeah, don't sign a personal guarantee. That would be my other piece of money advice. Wow. So what is the best investment you've ever made that is not in yourself or your own businesses, but an external business? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I've had some gangbusters businesses from the show that have done really, really well. I mean, all the dragons made fun of me for investing in ND at a $20 million valuation and it sold 18 months later for hundred million bucks or something like that. I invested in two ex-police officers that were like, we bought three RVs. We couldn't rent them out on Airbnb. So we built the Airbnb for RVs actually really difficult to copy because there's a huge amount of insurance that goes into renting an RV. So they came up with this company called RVZ. They were so early. Like I think they had like in the like 20s, 30s, 40 RVs on the platform when they came onto Dragon's Den. And I mean, today this company is absolutely massive. Like they are the, they are probably the the market leader, the second biggest player in the space, and people are renting RVs for absolutely everything. And so that that's just been a company that's done, Mike and Will from RVZ have done so well. So I think those are just some of the good, the good hits. But I mean, it's like a typical angel portfolio. It's like you win some, you lose some for sure. If you could do anything else for a living, what would it be? I think I would have been a really good journalist. I'm really good at answering questions. I'm good at finding out information from people. 
not information in like a, in a prying sort of way, just did like a really understanding the story and the way that the world works kind of way. I think I would have, if I was to job my own company, I'd be a graphics designer. I think that I have a, I have a really good eye and a good love for how to build products that are incredibly intuitive and natural for people to use. And I'm a decent marketer. I understand how to talk to people about things that are complicated and make them really simple to understand. So I think those would have been all pretty fun professions, but I think, I think being CEO, I think being an entrepreneur is, is the greatest profession you can find. What is the thing that you worry about the most? I think it goes in phases. You know, you worry about your relationship, you worry about your family, you worry about your company, you worry about your employees. And I think in that way, it's actually very healthy to have a couple of different things that are always on the back of your mind. And, you know, I was taught this concept called weak signals a long time ago, which is like, you know, you always have like 20 things that are kind of going wrong. The problem is only one of those 20 is going to like blow up into something. And so it's part of the challenge as a CEO is you kind of kind of constantly keep track of like your weak signals and what's happening. And one of them will blow up and one blows up, you fix it. And if not, you just keep going. And last but not least, what makes you feel superhuman? Oh, a really good night's sleep. (laughs) I think that sometimes you wake up and you're like, whoa, I can do this. You know, a really incredible run, a really amazing heart to heart. And honestly, I just call it the like making magic happen. Like I've had so many problems. It's like, I call it the weekly disaster. Every business has a weekly disaster. And I'm just like, okay, pick up the phone and call someone, pick up the phone and just like, see if someone else knows how to solve this problem, pick up the phone and like make the ask, pick up the phone and be like, will this person do it? And I just find that I can create this like magic when I just like force myself out of my comfort zone. And maybe that's the ultimate thing is like, I am superhuman when I can never be comfortable because it's that discomfort that produces, you know, a lot of, a lot of ability to just keep going and a lot of resilience. Michelle, this episode has been so incredibly inspiring and everyone listening, I'm sure, is going to be making all these notes. So I I just really appreciate your time. Where can everyone find you if they want to follow you and check out ClearCo? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I would love for people to find me. So it's Michelle with one L because my parents brought the second L, Romano. I am very active on Instagram, a little less active on Twitter, but you know, find me on any of the the social media platforms. I do a lot of LinkedIn and would love to, to connect with folks. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. That is all we have for now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, we have hundreds more like it. So don't forget to subscribe and rate the show to ensure more episodes get targeted to you when you open up your podcast app. Bye for now.